Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! Tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, universities. Yes. Which is obviously a topic that um, is, I guess, near to my heart and Jesse's as uh, an academic and yep. a sort of wannabe academic, respectively, <laughs> um, vi- or vice versa, I guess I should say. Right. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but so when we were researching this, um, one thing I was thinking about is how the universities have really been around for about a thousand years, which is simultaneously a number that makes them very, very old and much more modern than a lot of Middle Ages stuff. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so let's talk about this. Um, yeah. How did, where do universities come from? What exactly are universities? Yes. So this is actually a great point because, um, yeah, like the modern world starts in the Middle Ages, you know, and um, I know we think like early modern, but obviously the foundations are all laid in the Middle Ages. And universities are absolutely one of those things that are founded in the Middle Ages, um, very much kind of in the middle of the Middle Ages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And they still exist in a medieval format. I mean, the university as it exists today absolutely is still in a lot of ways the medieval university. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like at some of the British ones, um, they still wear gowns all the time. Yes. Like, it's not just for graduation like it is in, in uh, you know, the U.S. Right. Like, very... Yeah. But even the fact, right, that we wear gowns, hoods... Yes. Stoles, right? All these things that are part of the university ceremonial aspect. Um, at this point, yeah, obviously it absolutely comes from the Middle Ages. Um, there is a very, very obvious way in which it is related to both, of course, theological garments, basically, um, and also guilds, right? Um, this is where you get gowns and hoods and, (laughs) right? And those things are related. But these are the sort of ceremonial garments of the time. And that is why we still wear them, right? If you get a high enough degree, you are hooded. Yes. And (laughs) yeah, that's, you know, obviously, yes, it's based on a very old idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, for master's degrees, you just get um, a stole, I think. But, yes, for any, you know. but for an MFA, right? For for any um, terminal, terminal degree, degrees, yeah. you get a hood. Yeah. So MFAs, but those hoods are a little bit shorter than mm-hmm. the doctorate. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the funny thing, of course, is that um, we should point out we were kind of inspired to do this because at the time we're recording this, it'll be posted way in the future, so we'll know more about what happened. But there was recent very well-deserved controversy about a sort of horrific op-ed written in the Wall Street Journal about whether or not Dr. Jill Biden should be allowed to use the term doctor. Mm-hmm. 
Did he actually have any points other than that she shouldn't? Like, oh no, no. I've only the parts no. I've all, I've seen quoted were just like, "Hey, why don't you just drop right. the title?" Well, he did also have one racist comment that I oh. can't remember where it came in, but he was basically saying like, um, "The you know, oh, what was the actual quote? Something or other um, is as unusual as." a list of honorary degrees without African-American women on it or something like that. Hmm. Which was just astonishingly racist. And a lot of people kind of passed over it a little bit because... Hmm. Everything else was so terrible. <laughs> everything else was also so terrible. Like, yes. But, um, but this also... This is a guy who, in the 70s, I think, wrote an op-ed talking about how he wanted gay people to disappear from the face of the earth and how sad he would be if his sons turned out to be gay. Yes, he was also incredibly homophobic, or is incredibly homophobic. Yeah. yeah. He's since said that society has changed and I feel less bad about gay people and whatever. <laughs> yeah, and he whatever. said, I think the quote was in 2015, he was like, I just hope that my obituaries are not preceded by the term noted homophobe. I was like, well, well, you've solved that problem, my dude. Yes, noticed, noted <laughs> sexist and homophobe. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes, I mean, obviously. And worth pointing out, I mean, so full disclosure, of course, he taught at Northwestern for years, um, but he does not have any higher degree. He only has a bachelor. Yeah, he has a bachelor's. He was a lecturer, right, or an adjunct at, at Northwestern for many years in the English department. Um, he left Around the time I got there, and of course, mm -hmm. you know, I was in theater technically, but my, you know, some of my professors were in English, um, and left, I don't know, we'll just say left, but Northwestern has definitely disowned him recently. <laughs> yes. Um, very much so in strong terms in their own commentary. But also, of course, worth pointing out, he has an honorary degree from somewhere, and he complained a lot about honorary degrees, which is where that racist comment came from. But Dr. Biden does not have an honorary degree. She wrote a dissertation. Yes. <laughs> like, she earned she her degree. An ed D, I think. Yes. Yeah, doctorate of education. Um, and so that, number one. Um, mm -hmm. Number two, of course, you know, he made some point about how he didn't ask people to call him doctor. But, of course, they shouldn't have because yeah. he didn't have one. <laughs> Um, and so on top of all of this, of course, have been the memes that have now multiplied that are quite wonderful that point out all of the men who are not medical doctors who nonetheless deserve and get to use the term. Uh, yes. We assume that he didn't write a letter to Dr. Kissinger telling him not to use the term <laughs> doctor. <laughs> yes. Um, and there's some great memes, the scene where, you know, that. I mean, there are a lot of these scenes, but in Indiana Jones, where, like, you know, the guys catch up to him, and they're like, you know, um, Dr. Jones. Mm -hmm. And there's a new meme that's, like, um, where they're saying that, you know, Dr. Jones, and then it has Harrison Ford answering, no, call me Mr. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so clearly yeah. ridiculous. Yes. So the inter the other funny part about all of this is his quip about um, only okay. medical doctors should call themselves doctor. And there's like, I think the Royal College of Surgeons in the UK, there's like two colleges of surgeons, but yeah. one of them, they go by Mr. for like, 
yes. long-standing traditional reasons. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And, of course, a lot of this actually really does trace back to medieval universities, right? Which is sort of yes. where, because um, in addition to, yes, a lot of the sort of original colleges of surgeons advertising themselves and saying things, and of course, in some cases, you get places that have been around so long that they spell, used to spell surgery with like a CH, right? Yes. <laughs> so like this, um, that you get like surgery, right? Um, you mm. have, you know, uh, dictionaries, whoever it was. I mean, a few of them tweeted out the etymology, right, of <laughs> the word yes. doctor, um, which comes from the Latin word to teach, right? And that was, of course, right, to this day. I mean, you need a doctorate to be able to teach at a university. And that is a long-standing tradition. That, or you have yes. to be really famous for some other reason. Mm -hmm. um, in which case, you know. But this, this, is this is basically sort of where universities come from and why they exist. Um, and the doctorate, of course, was not originally associated with medicine at all, right? Um, it was associated with a number of the original higher... <laughs> Degrees, right? Of which medicine is one, but only one. Also, of course, to be a doctor of medicine at the time wasn't necessarily the same as being a practical surgeon, right? right. Um, so this is some of the stuff that we will talk about. <laughs> um, first, it is worth noting that we are using the term university to mean very specifically the Western and, in fact, European really Western European institution that arises in the middle of slash sort of in the high middle ages. Mm -hmm. um, so there are plenty of other institutions of higher learning that have existed around the world at many different times, but the university as it comes into being is a very specific type of institution. Mm -hmm. And that is what we still have today. Um, when we talk about a university, obviously a lot of places around the world um, that, you know, formed higher places of higher learning at various times, um, sometimes those things have now become universities, sort of, sort of along the Western model. Um, but we are very specifically interested in the sort of very specific Western institution, right? Yeah. So there are definitely, obviously, <laughs> older... Uh, institutions of higher learning, but they are different. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, so we're sort of ignoring the word academy itself, of course, comes from Greece. Right? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, we're <laughs> ignoring some of these. Um, but, you know, Plato's school was the academy, which is... Um, and Aristotle's, of course, was Lyceum, which also does get translated into terms for higher learning in a lot of places. Not so much in English, but... Yeah, it's more like high school? Yeah. In yeah. some places also? Yeah. I think? In yeah. German, maybe? Yes. Yeah, a lot of places, actually. So, just, I mean, in Europe. <laughs> a lot of European mm -hmm. languages. Just not so much in English. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, you know, the Academy has been the settled one. Um... That being said. <laughs> it's good to be Plato. Yes, it is. Um, and obviously, you know, there are other things like that, right? So the Islamic madrasa, right? Which absolutely, mm -hmm. they sort of become 
you know, they are higher institutions of higher learning. Arguably, a lot of them do form earlier, maybe than Western universities. Um, and by this, we don't mean just sort of schools, but, you know, clearly sort of institutional places of higher learning. But again, along a very different sort of line from what the universities become in Europe. So, mm-hmm. and the reason we're sort of discussing this is because I said we there's so much that we do today that is based on medieval practice. So it becomes obvious, yes, gowns, um, and yeah, like Oxford and Cambridge and so on, it's not just that they might still wear the gowns, but things like everyone eating together at the high table. Mm-hmm. Again, these are things that are clearly based on like guild and yeah. monastic practice, right? Yeah, even people <laughs> who aren't um, familiar with this from, you know, looking at things about Oxford and Cambridge might recognize the high yeah. table and stuff from Harry Potter. Where Yep. They yeah. both wear they wear gowns and eat at a high table. I mean, yes. I assume that it's based on British public school life, also. Yeah, absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, right the high table. This is where all the jokes come from about the Last Supper, which we've talked about in the past. Um, mm-hmm. But that they are the high table. That is yeah. the excuse for showing them all facing us. <laughs> um, yes. It is symbolic because, of course, theoretically, they were just a group of friends. But mm-hmm. they are not thought of that way. <laughs> so they're always painted as the high table. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, I mean, not always. There are paintings of them around a table, but it is the less common version, arguably. Anyway, um, yeah, so all of these traditions. But on top of that, of course, the way universities work today. So I'm going to just start with sort of the way universities work today. <laughs> Quick, as a breakdown. Um, right. Because it's... One of the things that's worth pointing out, right, is that there are two basic forms of education, uh, and they both actually exist in the institutions of higher learning. One of them is the sort of one-on-one tutor mm-hmm. aspect. This is tutor. This is not the English period. This is a tutor. Right. Who teaches a pupil, right? Not a tutor. Yeah. So a tutor. Um, so a tutor, one-on-one, or more or less one-on-one, right, small groups, um, and that obviously has existed for probably most of history, um, still exists. I had a lot of philosophy professors who liked that model. Yeah. Or even if they didn't necessarily do it all year, they did, you know, tutorials for final exams. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's, and then of course the kind we're used to, which is a classroom with a teacher, right? Yeah. The lecture yeah. type of model. Right. And both of these has, have existed probably since before written history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they both continue to exist in universities, right? So it's not that universities changed that model in any way. Also, a lot of people look at specialization. It's not really about specialization because you can get that, you can get that from a tutor, you can get it from a classroom. Um, you know, there's no reason this has to be organized and into an institution mm-hmm. because, like, if you're a you know, 10,000 years ago before written history, 40,000 years ago, whatever. Um, you know, there's someone who teaches you how to make an arrow. They might not be the same person who teaches you how to shoot the arrow. Yes. There's someone who teaches you how to carve a flute. They might not be the same person who teaches you how to play it. You know, it's... So specialization has also existed for a very long time in human society. Um, again, why would you only suddenly have universities show up. No. Um, 
there's plenty of specialization, right? We've talked about guilds, actually, our previous episode, which are specialized. Um, And all of that, you know, that shows up earlier. So what is happening? Well, um, essentially, right, it seems to be somewhat along the lines of um, looking at (laughs) guilds, on the one hand, monastic schools, on the other hand, um, and... The idea that basically what happens is that universities become guilds for certain types of learning Mm -hmm. that are, I mean, one hates to sort of put it this way, but on some level, not in quotes, practical. (laughs) Mm. And therefore do not have craft guilds. Okay. Right? But they want. If you're a glass blower, you're going to go do an apprenticeship with someone who knows about glass. Yes. But if you want to, what if you about... just want to talk about philosophy? Yes. <laughs> uh, professional bullshitting guild. No. Yes. Sorry. Uh, um. There are fewer of those in the Middle Ages than there are yes. today. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now we have many potentially. No. Um, yeah. So, and the thing is, you don't just want to know philosophy, though. You also want to learn astronomy, right? Um, mm-hmm. And music. <laughs> and maybe medicine, right? Law. Yeah. Theology. Okay, but you want the autonomy that doesn't exist if, from a, a monastic school. Right. Right. Um, you want a certain level of autonomy. You want more teachers. You know, you go to a specific mm-hmm. monastic school, you have this basically this one teacher. Um, what happens? You know, you want something like a guild where there are a lot of masters and a lot of sort of apprentices and some journeymen in the middle, but for education, basically. Mm-hmm. Right, and this is this is sort of what happens, and so there's that on the one hand, and on the other hand, what actually makes the institution of the university in the West so specific is, of course, scholasticism, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is a fancy term for saying uh, medieval pedagogy. Right, it's the way they thought okay. you should teach and learn in the Middle Ages. Right, this is sort of great, mm-hmm. um, and honestly, it's still the freaking same. So. You start off in grammar school, which would just be, I mean, we call it grammar school. Now we call it K-12, to I guess. But it's not really K-12. to It's more of the K-6, to I don't know, six, I guess, grade yeah. school. Elementary level. <laughs> yeah, more of elementary yeah. school. But, you know, grammar school is still a phrase we use, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we say, like, the three R's, ironically. Yes. Reading, writing, arithmetic. Yes. <laughs> um. And of course, that's not all you learn. It's never necessarily been all you learn. But this right. is based on the trivium, mm-hmm. which uh, readers, of course, of Phantom Tollbooth will know the terrible trivium. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is, of course, the commentary by Norton Jester on, you know, sort of this very rigid idea of education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which it, it could be. I mean, these are the pluses and minuses of Western mm-hmm. learning, basically. Um, but anyway, so essentially, right, um, the trivium was grammar, logic, and rhetoric, right? Okay. Um, so reading, we say reading, writing, arithmetic, arithmetic was actually higher. So grammar, logic, and rhetoric were the three. I was going to assume that, like, in my experience, logic is a lot like math, but without the numbers, so. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And it makes sense. Um, rhetoric for obvious reasons, right? You need to be able to convince people of stuff. 
um, and talk to people in, you know, politics, basically, yeah. right? Um, and grammar. This is, this is reading and writing. I mean, that is what that mm-hmm. is. Um, so these three things. So that's the trivium. That's the sort of basis. Um, and that could be all you do, of course. Um, if you want more, though, it's possible this is where you start to have to go to university, right? Um, the quadrivium, uh, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Okay. So those are the, that's the next up. So that's the sort of high school, maybe undergrad education. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, this is the point at which you start to need, if you want to learn all of them, you could go to different teachers. People certainly did that, right? There are mm-hmm. lots of, you know, throughout the Middle Ages, of course, there's lots of little schools that teach different things and you can go around and learn different things. But how do you become accredited? How do you tell people that you now know these things and that you should be allowed to teach at their school? Or you should be allowed to have a parish because you know enough theology that you should be given a position as a parish priest. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to move up the clerical ladder past just parish priest. You want to be a bishop or something. Um, Jane Austen is great because she's got all this stuff in there. Yeah, you've got all these tutors in Jane Austen, but you've got right all these men who are not like super independently wealthy, mm-hmm. but they deserve a sort of gentlemanly yeah. life. And the answer is always to give them a parish. Yes. And they do. They go back and forth <laughs> to university and stuff like that. Yes. And so that's that's what you get, right? Is you get a mm-hmm. parish because you have been educated at the university, you have deserved You're a deserving that. younger son, basically. The oldest yes. son gets the yes. gets the Abby, yeah. Everybody else (laughs) gets to be a priest. But a priest who can get married, so it's, you know. Yes, in England at the time of, by then, yeah, yeah. Obviously in the Middle Ages, not not yet. Well, in the Middle Ages, actually, this is something else, of course. Universities do start to form, actually, at exactly the time that priests can no longer get married. Uh Aha. Which is something that people haven't written about. That's not necessarily a connection, but it is worth pointing out that suddenly, right, being a priest is becoming a profession in the same way being a monk is. Hmm. Right? And so the professionalization of that, it's it's very much the same as today, right? Um, and a lot has been written about the institutional side and about scholasticism specifically, but there's a lot being written now about the social side. And it it comes down to the same thing, right? Everyone needs a job, and people who are hiring need to make sure that you are accredited, basically. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and how how do you do that? <laughs> right? So it's, it's a lot of times thought that, like, universities sort of formed, like, just to train priests. No, no, no. There are mm-hmm. plenty of ways to train priests. I mean, mostly, like, you just send them off to monastic school, and when they have enough Latin or whatever, you shove them off somewhere. Yeah. But what if you want more than that? Right? You want a parish. You want more. You want to move up the hierarchy. Um. What if you don't necessarily want to be a priest? You want to be something else that is not a craft skilled related mm-hmm. skill, <laughs> um, right? Lawyer, financier, merchant, whatever, you know. Yes. You have these other things in mind. Where do you get the education you need? And where do you get sort of credentials that demonstrate to people that you are worthy? Mm-hmm. Right? So you need the job. Other people need to make sure you're trained well, you know, and universities have all that is. Once they arrive, that is the gap they fill, and that is the gap they still fill. Mm-hmm. Also, right, the reason I said sort of about practical versus impractical, to a certain extent, all university education, and it doesn't matter what it is, right, if you're not going to a trade school, uh, to some degree, a university education is not going to be, in quotes, practical, because it has to be universal. Mm-hmm. 
right? So chemistry. All the chemistry you do as an undergrad is going to be just basic knowledge and understanding, right? And you can then take that anywhere. You can go into industrial science. You can become an engineer. Like you, There's so many mm -hmm. things you can do with it. And we so we tend to view that as practical. But in a lot of ways, it's it's not because you still need more. Right. Right. If you join up with a specific like oil industry or something, then you'll learn exactly how to apply your chemistry. Right. So you'll learn the application later. Mm -hmm. But you need this practical universal skill set that you can take with you. Right. Um, and that's something else that happens. Universities step into this gap of um, they're not teaching architecture. Right. Um, they're not teaching stonemasonry. They're not teaching crafts, not just because craft guilds already exist, mm -hmm. but also because if you are in a specific city and you learn a skill, you can't necessarily go to another city and join a guild there. Oh. Right. Um, and we talked about this actually a little bit last time, sort of with the guilds and women. Right. And how London had some real issues, not just with women joining, but also with sort of foreign craftspeople mm -hmm. joining. And what happened was that, right, women would learn a profession maybe from someone who was not English, who was willing to teach them, and then marry someone, whether British or foreign, and bring them into the guild, mm. <laughs> right, or get them to join the guild. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of sort of worry. I mean, Brexit. Here we go. Right? Ah. The sort of fear of people from outside taking over joint, you know, learning mm -hmm. skills and taking them other places. Uh, occasionally that sort of banned. People try to ban people from learning a skill one place and taking it somewhere else. Mm. Right. And at the same time, people in other places try and protect their own craft skills by saying, like, you can't learn this somewhere else. You have to learn it from us. Right. Uh, university education tends not to work that way. There are times when people are banned from going to other universities. Um, but that Ooh. is once okay. universities become established mm -hmm. and you want to keep, you don't want the, you don't want to drain your brain trust. Right. Right. But the thing is, it's, it's much harder to enforce the university bans because ultimately that learning is applicable anywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and people can sort of take it and start teaching somewhere else and you can have banned them from leaving, but if they get out and go somewhere else that's willing to have them, what are you going to do about it? Right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, and there are plenty of places that are really excited to have someone who trained at Paris or Bologna. Right. Mm -hmm. Or even Oxford. So um, there's this really interesting sort of um, aspect, right, that universities have also always fulfilled this need for a sort of universal and universalizing education. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, something that can be taken on the road, as it were. Okay, so that's something that obviously, yeah, that universities still do. Um, finally, of course, scholasticism, in addition to sort of these various things, um, then you get the highest degree, which is where you get the, the masters and the doctorates, um, which is theology, law, and medicine, predominantly. Those are the big ones. And so that is why, right, to be a medical doctor is not the original. Arguably, law is the original, because Bologna is probably the oldest university. We'll talk about this in a sec, but Bologna lays claim to be the oldest university. And it sort of formed around law. Uh, Paris is next. It gets best known for theology. They all teach more than this, but you know. Right. Um, and then Oxford also. A little bit when we talked about Joan of Arc. Yes. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, Paris gets known for theology. Oxford becomes known, well, starts as law, probably. But then, you know, of course, becomes known for a lot of things. Um, but also because England, like, England doesn't have a lot. <laughs> I mean, they get Cambridge eventually, too, right? Yeah. But Oxford, you know, is the beginning. Um, and then Padova eventually becomes known as medicine. Um, there are plenty of others in between and around, but anyway. Um but those are right. Those are sort of the big doctorate subjects, and so law and theology really come first. Medicine comes up maybe a little bit behind, um, and scholasticism, right? In addition to sort of laying out the order in which things should be done, which is to say that, which of course is still what we do, right? Mm -hmm. Grade school, you sort of do everything. Middle school and high school, you start to specialize, right? You get to kind of choose a little bit of your class schedule. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're doing math, do you want to do, do you want to continue with algebra? Do you do geometry? You know, how far do you go? Do you take physics, right? Um, and then, of course, as an undergrad, now you really start to specialize. You end up in a specific department. Mm -hmm. So departments are the modern equivalent of the fact, of course, I mean, we have departments within schools, right? But this is where the original universities came from. You sort of had schools combining into a university. And generally you had a sort of theology faculty, a law faculty, right? Liberal arts faculty. Yeah. So all of these things existed, right? This really is how universities developed, was into this type of institution. And the final part, of course, is that we learn stuff. You get lectures and discussions, and then you get exams mm -hmm. and you write papers, <laughs> Right? Um, and this is also basically what happened in the Middle Ages. Um, so the lecture, now lecture we just means talking, but of course really it also means to read, and originally oh, yes. did mean that. They had libraries. Yes. Yeah. So you, um, basically you would read something, you would read a commentary on it, so write primary and secondary sources. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there was an official syllabus, basically, right, that said, you know, these are the things you have to read for this part of your study, you know, for this year of study. Um, and you have to learn it all, and then you can move on to the next year of study. Um, and, of course, a year wasn't necessarily a literal year. I mean, um, degrees, a doctorate, certainly, it took it as like as little as five or six years, which is sort of the same today, um, and as much as like <laughs> 10, which uh, can be the same today, you know. Yeah, it depends on the topic. I've known people who were in it for yeah. a long time. Yes, these days, a university will usually kind of kick you out after 10, mm -hmm. um, unless you get special, you know, dispensation or something. Um, but anyway, so you read your text, you read the commentary, um, and then basically you have to discuss it. So then the next part is the dispute. Right. And this is sort of the famous mm -hmm. part, right, where you have to debate um, according to Aristotelian sort of logic and so on. Um, and you'd have to reference all your stuff and you there would be a particular thesis, right, a specific sort of question. Um, and then you either establish it or you, you defend it, you refute it. Um, and it's kind of preordained. But anyway, you know, um, and you get a big debate. Uh, and of course, this is how debate club still works today. Um, exams today, of course, we tend to have written exams um, rather than oral exams, although there are universities that do oral exams, even for undergrads. But that tends to be less true. But obviously, once you hit, like, a master's and certainly a doctorate, you absolutely yeah. have oral exams. 
<laughs> Famously. Doctorates are a lot more, um, what is cantankerous? I don't know. I think their <laughs> master's oral exams are very light and kind to people, I think, yeah. by contrast. Dissertation oral exams and oral, right, you have your exams and you ultimately will have a defense. Um, yeah can be yeah it depends i mean mine were fantastic because my professors were brilliant and beautiful people but they can be famously horrific yeah i've heard stories and i've also heard stories about like committee members getting into fights oh yeah each other um during yeah classic yes and sometimes of course you know putting their student in the middle so the student's in kind of an impossible situation because they're yes. clearly fighting, like, through you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, only one of them can be right. You know, anyway. Yeah. You tell Dr. Jones that those yes. nematodes, that model is wrong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you tell Dr. Smith that he can take his nematodes and okay. stuff them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. This is how it works. Um, so, uh, that is, of course, you know, the funny thing, it is still how we work. Um, essay questions on exams, right? The teacher yep. sets the question, and the student has to establish or defend or refute, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, hopefully, these days, we require creative thinking. You're not just supposed to regurgitate what you've heard. You are supposed to come up with creative answers. But nonetheless, right, this is clearly still the basis for how we educate in Western universities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it absolutely goes back very clearly, right, to the way universities were formed. Yeah. Um, all right. So with all of that being said, there is more to say, of course. Um, but we're going to start with Bologna here, um, which takes the claim as the oldest university. It sets its date to 1088, which probably is not necessarily accurate um just because if we are being specific (laughs) they moved it i feel like they moved it they must you know they're like oxford is claiming like 1096 so we're just gonna go a little (laughs) earlier right well bologna is right oxford is definitely younger than bologna and paris the only real Mm -hmm. fight is who is older bologna or paris and bologna is probably older the question is just how much, and that's yeah. unclear. Maybe not much. Uh, and the reason is because if we're taking universities as this very specific definition, then we have to stick to it. And mm. there are plenty of schools, right, general, general sort of schools um, in, in Bologna, right? But at what point do they form into what can genuinely be called a university? Mm-hmm. Right. And so that sort of becomes the question. And basically, um, just a sort of quick note that one of the things that Bologna does <laughs> is sort of institute um, an examination process, I guess you would say, whereby um, the doctoral examinations uh, were heard by the entire faculty, basically, um, you know, for that specialty. Which Mm -hmm. is to say, um, colleges continue around the idea, universities, right, continue around the idea that specific faculty members will be attached to specific students, which is very much like how, you know, today, like you have a dissertation chair, and then you have the other people on your committee. So that continues to be true, where a specific, you know, professor will sort of be in charge of specific students. Um, However, right, 
uh, to get it to actually get the degree and you that you have to prove your knowledge in front of everybody. <laughs> um, which of course, yeah. you know, that's how you get that's how you prove you learned, right? Mm-hmm. You don't just get to be your teacher's favorite student. And they're like, Oh, sure, you passed, right? Um, that you actually have to prove yourself. So, you know, and this, of course, becomes common throughout universities. But yeah, Bologna also and Paris are the two that are sort of truly kind of international. Um, Padova arguably becomes international as well when it becomes sort of the primary medical school. Um, but otherwise, universities tend to sort of spring up to help out their local or, you know, in quotes, national. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of places aren't nations yet, but, <laughs> um, you know, they're regional students, yes. basically. Um, but Bologna, right, like Paris, they're both hubs, of, of trade and commerce and pilgrimage and all this stuff. Um, pilgrimage for Bologna because people, you know, come through on their way to Rome. Um, and so this is another reason, right? Bologna actually has a lot of individual little schools um, throughout the 10 hundreds that are foreign students um, who get grouped into their own schools sort of by nation, hmm. right? And eventually what happens is um, they form a group, basically like a guild. Um, they feel they're not being given their rights. <laughs> At this point, they're pretty powerful economically in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, sort of um, challenge the city to give them something <laughs> like a guild. Um, and so they basically, they basically become the formation of the university. So it is really a student-formed collective, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so all these schools kind of get consolidated. Um, they are still separate entities in certain ways, which is to say, um, you know, the same way departments and stuff are today. But they're under the sort of umbrella of what becomes the University of Bologna. Um, okay. And of course, the, the question becomes sort of, you know, when exactly does that happen? Um, so Bologna likes to spin themselves as 1088. Um, Freddy Barbarossa which would be Holy Roman Emperor Frederick <laughs> the First. He gives them a sort of charter in like 1055 or 1058. And so that's another good date. Um, sorry, that's 11, 1155 or 58. Okay. Right. So they, they put themselves at 1088 just kind of for fun. And not, that's not entirely true, but there, there are various reasons. But basically, it's hard to prove because there's some famous teachers teaching in Bologna at the time. And the argument was sort of, um, that they're here because it's a center of education. Now, that is true. But again, you can't prove that the institution that is known as the university exists, right? You know, these are famous teachers who are like, right. Bologna is a great place for students. We show up and we have our students. But there's nothing that proves that they're in part of a university and not a sort of school, right? Scuola um, or okay. studia or something, right? The sort of general studias. Um, so... Basically, right, that sort of becomes the question is when does it really format into a university? Um, so, right, Freddie gives them this charter in 1155 or um, which is another great date. He clearly, he's basically recognizing given protection to something that already exists, right? So they've been around for a while. Um, and there's some people who are like, that's a great date to s- say, well, they're definitely a university by that point. They've probably been one for a few decades, you know. Sure. There are other people who argue that maybe it's not even until the 1180s where they clearly get a charter that's like, yes, you're a university, <laughs> where they're clearly an official modern university. Okay. 
So somewhere in that hundred years between 1080 and 1180 is where they get to claim their their title. Okay. You know, people do tend to put it, I would say, a little bit earlier in the 1100s than later, but whatever. You know, it's if we're really going to be technical about it, then there is definitely a lot of room for argument. Mm -hmm. That being said, uh, we... You know, they do definitely form ultimately around the study of law, particularly. They, a lot of things. I mean, of course, they do theology, they do all the stuff, but Bologna becomes the place for law. Um, they are studying Roman law, right? Mm -hmm. So like the codes of Justinian, for example, um, the sort of texts, some of these are rediscovered, um, in kind of the 10 hundreds and, um, they really are sort of instrumental in studying them considering how they relate to um, medieval law and really sort of helping formulate the course of medieval law and jurisprudence and things. Um, but particularly, right, it's as much this, the philosophical study of these things as the practical application. So they are forming lawyers, but really also they're studying people, they're forming people who study the law, right? Legal historians, I right. should say, right? Um and people who will be good judges, right? In in the modern sense of a judge mm -hmm. who sort of reads the law and says, what does this really mean? What are the precedents? Right? All this stuff. Uh -huh. um, so yes. that's really what they're doing is sort of coming up with these things um, and saying, well, look, um, is it just that we have this law that says these things? Because is that really fair to these types of people? Look at what the Romans did. Um, anyway, so they're right. So Bologna becomes really, that's sort of their, their fame. Um, and probably one of the reasons that they really gelled <laughs> into a university. Um, or arguably one of the reasons why they really gelled. Um, Paris. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Paris, again, right, frequently wants to say it's older than Bologna, but probably isn't quite. Um, their dates also, right, so 1150 is sort of one of their early dates that they like to give. Mm -hmm. 11. In the 1180s, so the Capetan monarchy is sort of consolidating itself, um, and there's an influx of sort of students again, because this is a hub. You have famous scholars working here. Sure. Um, Everybody wants know. to be in Paris. Exactly. It's right? still true, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it is, it is absolutely a hub, as it has been for a very long time. Um, and one of the things that happens is you have, like, poorer students who can't really don't have accommodations stuff like this so you sort of get the formation of kind of dorms on some level but you know more like colleges like the honors college mm -hmm. or something it you know where you sort of live and work and learn together um so you have these sort of creations of accommodations and stuff in kind of the 1180s which helps solidify this idea right that this is a singular place <laughs> like university um and in this case, actually, the masters, so the teachers, right, mm -hmm. the magisters, um, magisters, and the king help kind of consolidate the schools into a university, um, partly because this is also true in Bologna, right? It helps settle disputes, because if you have a lot of different schools going on, you have people sort of fighting about who's right and who's better and whose accreditations are higher, you know, whatever. Um, sure. You consolidate them all into one thing. Now it's just interdepartmental fighting, which goes on today with great style, yes. <laughs> right? Um, so that happens. Um, so sort of the 1180s, you get the same thing. Um, 
basically, they get a charter in 1213 that would seem to, you know, by then they are unequivocally a, a university. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. So again, right, this is kind of why, you know, Bologna is probably a little bit above, but you see how, like, they both, uh, the 1180s are important for both of them, so it becomes a little mm-hmm. iffy. In 1246, they actually come up with an official seal. So that's fun. All right. And then Oxford. Oh, and Paris, of course, as we said, theology. Of course, they do everything like everybody, but theology is their big, their big one. Right. Sure. Um, okay. Oxford. It, you know, one of its dates that it likes is 1167. But <laughs> again, uh, in the 1180s, interestingly, Oxford becomes the seat of kind of a le- the ecclesiastical courts. Okay. Um, and lawyers are moving out to Oxford because that's where the, the courts are. Because, of course, the question is, why not London? Right? Mm-hmm. And this might be the answer. It's kind of unclear, but this might be the answer because the courts are there. There's royal administration there. Um, so you have people moving out there. And then, of course, you need lawyers. <laughs> um, and you have lawyers, right, who are out there learning and doing things. Um, and Oxford is forming, right? So the schools are sort of consolidating. Um, it does become sort of the main <laughs> slash only for a while, of course, law school in England. Um, 1214, they get the same liberties and privileges as Paris. They are very much based on the University of Paris, which is where everyone in England okay. went to before Oxford. <laughs> right. Right. So Paris is definitely older than Cambridge. I mean, Cambridge, than Oxford. Cambridge is younger still. We're not even going to really talk about Cambridge. Sorry, Cambridge. Um, yeah, Paris is definitely older than Oxford. Um, but again, Bologna is probably older than Paris, right? But Paris is the model for Oxford. It's the one they all want to be. Um, they essentially sort of, you know, they complain and sort of go on strike and stuff until they get their privileges in 1214 that sort of guarantee that they can function the same way that Paris does. Um, mm-hmm. So again, Oxford is clearly older than that. But probably later in the 1100s again, <laughs> you know, so the 1180s kind of come up again, um, later rather than sooner. Um, so, uh, oh, and they get an official or create their official seal in like 1276. Okay. Yes. So some, some places create seals real quick. Yeah. Um, okay. And then we're going to mention Padova, Padua, right? But Padova. Yeah. Um, 1222. So this is... I mean, not that much younger, but in some ways much younger, right? Mm -hmm. It's probably a good 60, 70 years younger. We're just going to say than Bologna, you know, 50, 40, 50 years younger than Paris, (laughs) 20, 30 years younger than Oxford. Um, There are other schools that have shown up in the meantime, so it's not the next down the list. Uh, But we are mentioning it because it's going to become the premier science and sort of medical university. Uh, So it shows up in 1222. Um. I remember visiting Padua with you, and yes, you went out and bought a bunch of books about um, medical, the medical yes. history of, like the <laughs> autopsy. There's a there's yep. a famous place where you could go to see autopsies, and yep. um, yeah. yes, you must oh, have. I so think big. you must have shipped like fifty pounds of books back from from probably there. yes, and they are all here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. It's so in 1595 is the current anatomical theater that you can go see. Mm -hmm. So they were definitely they definitely had older ones. But the current one that survives that is still there that you can go see is from 1595. 
Yeah. So Padova, yeah, I mean, they, they're sort of on the forefront. <laughs> um, I think we should if, mention that they're the setting of The Taming of the Shrew, right? Yep. And it, they're, they're all students at the university yes. there. Absolutely. And you'll notice, right, international. They have come up, right? Uh, he's come from Pisa mm-hmm. to be a student, right? Tranio, who's, and, you know, his master, I guess. Master, not in the case of, um, you know, he hasn't got his master's yet, but in the case that Tranio is his servant. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Yeah, Petruchio, I mean, they've all come in from other places to Padova. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely the point, right? It's a university town. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Lucentio has come in to be a student. Um, he obviously doesn't get very far in his studies. Um, <laughs> or maybe he goes back to school afterwards, we don't know. But he's coming with Tranio, who clearly is also quite bright. I mean, he probably goes to school with his master and, you know, maybe he does his homework. I mean, <laughs> it seems yeah. to be that kind of a... He's, you know, comedia. He's the smart servant. Um, and then, yeah, right. Um, that sort of sense of how... Um, yeah, how international it is. And of course, yes, they're all Italian, but international because these are all city-states. Right. Right. <laughs> Italy was not a united place until... Until the American Civil War. Much, yeah. much more recently. And yeah. I mean, not because of... The, I mean, the same time-ish, right? The 1860s. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but yeah, we have people coming from Mantua. I mean, we have all this, you know. Um, anyway, so I think that's where... Is that where Tranio's father is from? Anyways... Someone gets mentioned from Mantua. Um, <laughs> we'll p- correct it in the notes. Because um, okay. when he's masquerading as the as Lucencio, right, and then Lucencio's father shows up, and he's like, my father, this, and he's like, what, your father's a, oh, is he a sailmaker in Bergamo? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. The The fake father that they find is, is from Mantua, or says he's from Mantua. Yeah. Um, and they're like, don't you know it's death to anyone? You have to pretend you're somebody else. You can't be from Mantua. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a war on between the cities right now. Yes. So they convince him to pretend that he's their father. Anyway. Yeah. So, but that's, yes, absolutely the point, right? The sort of international sense of these places, right? Yes. Which is absolutely true to today. Um, university towns are international. Um, and also very, very diverse. Obviously, right? University is like, we have people from all 50 states and also from 112 countries or whatever, right? Yeah. Universities advertise this widely, right? The more mm-hmm. states you cover, the more countries you cover, the more desirable you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, we have this sort of great sense, right, um, of all the people who show up and Padova especially because it's a scientific university, right? They're not in Bologna. They're in Padova. Um, which I assume kind of adds to the fun in some ways. Um, but also, this is the interesting point, which is where we're going. Um, actually, we'll, we'll take a detour. Some side notes. Vesalius, who wrote, who basically became the modern Galen, right? Galen was the text yes. until Vesalius. And then Vesalius writes right on the fabric of the human body. De Humani Caporis Fabrica, uh, published like 1543. He taught at Padova, right? He's born in Brussels. His illustrations are amazing. Yes. Worth checking out. Yeah, they're get used, they get used all the way up into the, like, the 1700s, mm-hmm. right? Basically Grey's Anatomy. But, like, yeah, they're just used forever. They're amazing. Um, so he's, he's born in Brussels. He does sort of make a stop at Bologna, but he ends up Padova, sort of his main school that he is associated with. Um, Galileo, 
also <laughs> yes. teaches at Padova. So, you know, I mean, there's a sort of great sense here of, of all the people who teach there. Um, and interestingly, um, the person who is credited <laughs> as the first woman to receive a doctorate, in this case of philosophy, oh. um, from a university, receives one in 1678 from the University of Padova. Um, and this is Elena Cornaro Piscopio. And um, yeah, there we go. So 1678, she receives her doctorate of philosophy from the University of Padova. Um, and she is a doctor. And there we are. Nice. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, women are doctors. Um, and so that's actually, this is obviously long after Kate and Taming of the Shrew. Um, but it's an interesting sort of commentary on Padova. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of feisty women who, who came through. Um, also, it is worth pointing out, since we might as well talk a little bit about women in education. I think we've mentioned before this guy who, uh, in the 1700s, <laughs> he got really interested in um, sort of, well, he was a forger, basically. He was a really good mm-hmm. scholar, but he was also a forger. He liked to forge things like metals. Um and by metals, I mean, you know, the kind, like, that you win at the Olympics. <laughs> okay. Like, you know, it's a metal, but it's also a medal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they would be issued for various things. Um, and so he would, you know, he liked to forge ones that had <laughs> not been issued, basically. Anyway. Okay. Um, but he forged other things as well. And one of the things he liked to forge was evidence for women doing stuff in the Middle Ages. Okay. So his name is Alessandro Machiavelli. Um, he's arguably not Machiavellian. I mean, I want to say, like, <laughs> not the most a... famous Machiavelli ever. But... No, not the most. Um, but we appreciate his efforts, right? That he really he wanted to verify uh, that women had done things. So mm-hmm. I think we talked about this at some time because we mentioned, um, you know, looking in the records and sort of decolonizing history, and that this this isn't a modern preoccupation. This is a very old preoccupation. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's around in the 1700s, and um, more specifically, and interestingly, <laughs> there was a woman in the 1700s, um, 1722-ish, uh, Delfina Dosi, who was denied the right to a degree from the University of Bologna, uh, based on essentially sort of the fact that they banned women from getting these things, but also... Huh. There was no evidentiary proof that they were willing to accept that demonstrated that a woman had, in fact, received a degree from the university before. Hmm. Now, the interesting thing is that for centuries, basically since the existence of the university, um, there had been tons of records that claimed women had graduated from the university to the point that people sort of looked at Bologna as this really kind of interesting place where women, you know, were allowed to go and look, you know, this modern, you know, in a very positive way. Look at this modern university where women are allowed to graduate and learn. Yes, as, you know, a modern society should do, blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of real pride in this idea. But there was no evidence that they were willing to accept um, and by mm. they, of course, we mean like the faculty of the university. <laughs> right. 
And it's worth pointing out that the university didn't keep records of its professors until like 1384 and didn't keep any records of people who got degrees there till the 15th century. Uh, today, the earliest surviving evidence, I guess, comes from 1480. Okay. Right. Uh, this is all from an article by Paula Findlin. Um, and, you know, I mean, so obviously, like, first of all, things disappear anyway, but also there aren't records till 1384 of professors, people who got degrees there, not till 1480 at least today but certainly mm -hmm. i mean the 1400s anyway apparently um so it's really hard to know actually whether women did in fact get a degree or there was a woman who got a degree and the most specific example is a woman who may or may not have existed but she probably represents the fact that somebody existed <laughs> okay it's we don't have evidence all right so the woman who is claimed as the big example Right. Um, Batizia Gozzadini, who supposedly lived 1209 to 1261. Um, and she was apparently supposedly very famous and popular in her own day, supposedly uh, shunned feminine activities since the age of 12 and had gone around dressed as a man, declaring herself a mm -hmm. disciple of Plato, received her doctorate supposedly uh, in June 1236, and then was granted a professorial chair in 1239. Okay. Uh, in 1261, she was unable to escape from a building during a storm and drowned. Bad luck. And supposedly they buried her, right, clothed in her doctoral robes. Um, and her master, who was unequivocally a real person, he was definitely a real person, famous, who mm -hmm. whose grave is actually still around, um, Odo Freitas, um, he supposedly, like, led her funeral procession, blah, blah, blah. Okay. The problem was that there wasn't evidence... There wasn't archival evidence for sure, obviously, that she'd graduated or gone there or whatever, because, you know, there wasn't any evidence from that time. <laughs> right. So uh, Machiavelli, Alessandro, right? Not, yeah. Um, he forged a medal that supposedly showed her as having graduated, you know, it was like, you know, her graduation mm -hmm. medal or whatever. Sure. And he ended up forging a whole lot of other stuff about her as well to sort of fill in her biography and all these other things. And some people were like, oh, he invented her. But no, I mean, he's based it actually on a lot of earlier evidence. That being said, it is possible someone much earlier, a couple centuries earlier, invented her. <laughs> okay. Um, but nonetheless, it seems to be clear that there were memories of, it It seemed multiple women, but certainly a woman who had in fact gone there and, you know, all this stuff. So if she isn't actually real, she nonetheless does seem to represent the fact that Bologna did pride itself on having had at least a woman, maybe women, who did attend the university um, and later taught. Uh, and despite the fact that this, you know, Dosi has denied her degree, um, in 1732, so only like 10 years later, uh, Laura Bassi, uh, in 1732, which is only 10 years after Dosi is denied her degree, um, does actually defend her thesis at Bologna and is then given a position. So she actually becomes the first salaried woman to have a university lectureship, which is also Apollonia. So everybody changes their minds really quickly somehow. Yes. Yeah. Well, probably it's possible some of the forged evidence actually had an effect. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but also probably they kind of got shamed into it the way people do today, right? Yeah. Because not just did Bologna supposedly have the storied history, which then they were then denying. But also there are a lot of people who really defended the woman at the time. And 
a lot of them were powerful, influential people, obviously, because that's the kind mm -hmm. of people who have money to get their daughter a college education. Yes. So you don't want to piss those people off, right? Maybe you can do it once, but you can't necessarily do it again, right? It's also worth pointing out the fact that the, the qualifications around this, right? So she's not called the first woman to teach at a university. She's the first woman we know to have a salaried university lectureship, right? Mm -hmm. So we are leaving open the possibility that there had been women previously, a few hundred years previously, that had taught at university. What did she lecture in? Oh, arts, liberal arts. This is Dr. Philosophy, so she's a, okay. you know, philosopher. But not just philosophy, right? Um, the various the various aspects of the um, arts that include, um, you know, same as today, basically. <laughs> yeah, um, liberal arts is basically everything that's not in the ag school or yeah engineering or. And it's also worth pointing out, by the way, that yeah, so yes, of course, right? Philosophy means does mean philosophy, but also sort of logic and, um, you know, but uh, also. Interestingly, um, astronomy, of course, which ends up at Padova being one of their doctoral uh, subjects, um, also does become one at Bologna. So then, so there are other things that sort of creep in, right? Because we had said, right, theology, law, medicine are the big ones, but there are a few others that creep in. So astronomy is one of them, which, of course, right, Galileo. <laughs> there are some other things that then slowly become sort of special. Um, but, you know, there's also a an argument kind of about where science belongs. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so medicine, for example, is it a natural science? Is it an art? Ah, these are the questions. Um, yes. So there's some weird, you know, the Middle Ages doesn't qualify everything the way we do, right? Music, of course, is its own special thing because it's very much connected to, right, arithmetic, geometry, music. Um, it's very much connected to those other subjects. It's thought of as a sort of, Science. It is thought of as a science. And of course, today we think of it as a fine art, basically on the opposite mm -hmm. end of the spectrum, right? Hmm. Um, but that's because we don't, you know, of course, if you go to college in music, you do know all the music theory. <laughs> but that's not how we think of music somehow. We don't think of the right. theory and the math. We think of it as just creative, not just, mm -hmm. right? But that is the idea. Um, so in, in some ways, there, there have been some negative I mean, there's some things the Middle Ages arguably sort of got right in a way that we have kind of devalued them. Um, that being said, you know, the argument about whether or not a doctorate earns you the right to be called doctor, that's sort of part of that, right? In the medicine in the Middle Ages was very much a sort of profession. To be a medical doctor meant you knew a lot of theory. It was less about the practice. Um, not without practice, but less about the practice, right? It wasn't only about practice. Um, and now, of course, you know, obviously it's about the practice. That's the point. <laughs> if you are the mm -hmm. sort of doctor who can save someone's life, right, as opposed to if you are a doctor of psychology, or which is arguably just as important. But um, so, yeah, it's really interesting because obviously a doctorate, the point of a doctorate really is higher education, that you have this higher mm -hmm. education that you can teach it. You know, so in the sense that the term exists, anyone who's achieved that level of schooling gets to use it, <laughs> basically, mm -hmm. right? There is not yeah. a distinction drawn in that way in the Middle Ages. But, you know, along the lines of devaluing certain types of knowledge, um, we're very much into that these days. Yeah. All right. So those are some women. Also worth mentioning, though, because we have been going along, the University of Salerno 
is much younger than the ones we've mentioned. Um, but Salerno did have sort of little schools or studia, mm -hmm. um, particularly surrounding medicine, and has become really famous because the texts known as sort of the Trotula texts uh, apparently came out of this or may have come out of this. Um, and recently it's sort of been discovered or, you know, figured out that these are three separate texts. Um, and so Monica Green is the person we're going to cite here because she, she's kind of the definitive take at the moment. So we're, we're going with her. Um, but she has agreed that of these three texts, two of them were probably written by men, although they're all three about women's medicine, women's health. Um, but the third text she has absolutely argued was written by a woman. Mm hmm. Um, and this woman has become known to us as Trata of Salerno, which is why the texts as a whole are known as the Trotula texts. Um, but her name wasn't actually Trotula, it's possibly Trota or something. Okay. And that's assuming that that is actually her name. But Monica Green's argument is that, yes, one of these was written by a woman who we might as well call Trota of Salerno <laughs> um, from the first half of the 12th century. She was not teaching, though, at a university because there wasn't one yet. Okay. But she may have been teaching, right? So that's, again, why that sort of qualification on, right, first woman to have a salaried lectureship, um, right? There may have been women who taught at Bologna early on, or at least a woman. Um, Trota of Salerno may have taught, um, but, you know, not not a salaried university lectureship. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, the, so this is sort of right. So universities... Yeah, this is how they sort of come about. They consolidate um, as a way of essentially, right, forming a collective like a guild. Um, and it's worth pointing out the university as a term actually could ha could have meant at one time <laughs> any sort of collective like a guild, mm -hmm. right? Um, but eventually, of course, right, so a university school was... Right, a university of scholars, right, or a university of scholars and masters was how you knew that you were talking about what we would today call a university. Obviously, eventually, you know, in the Middle Ages, pretty quickly, um, the term just, the term university becomes synonymous for the collective that we now consider it, right, which is teachers and students. Um, but originally, that was really the point was that the sort of form this collective so that you had as a group particularly as students, originally, right? That's sort of how Bologna, it's really the rights of the students, but eventually also masters, right? Paris is also founded by the masters. Mm -hmm. So to have rights that are in some ways similar to what guilds had socially in the city, but also for your members, particularly because your members were very likely international. Um, so to make sure that, you know, yeah, rights were protected, accreditation, that all these various things were protected. Mm -hmm. And also, of course, because these were things that didn't didn't have their own guild, right? So some people are like, well, you know, architecture is big. You know, Vitruvius wrote his book on architecture. Why wasn't that taught at university? You know, but that's really taken by a lot of the craft guilds. Right. Uh, whereas philosophy, there's not... <laughs> I mean, this is a Monty Python skit, right? But, um, I mean, there are many Monty Python skits about philosophy. But the idea of philosophy <laughs> as, like, a trade For guild or something, right? Yes. Um you know, th that's not 
going to happen. It's not a craft in that sense. Um, theology, if you're going to move past the monastic schools, right, if you want to become a scholar like Abelard, but you don't just automatically, I don't know why he sort of popped in there. I mean, he's a famous mm -hmm. University of Paris. Anyway, um, you know, but you don't just automatically have the aptitude. Um, how are you going to learn that? Mm -hmm. You know, um, so, you know, the universities exist really the way they always have, which is to give people a liberal arts education. <laughs> That's always been, right? Even science, which really is part of the liberal arts in this sense, right? And then now we kind of have separate off med school, right? Law school. Um, but again, yeah. those are the, those are still doctorates. I mean, uh, technically you don't get to use it necessarily in society. Could, we don't, um, but right, a JD. I think the process is also a little different in the US, right? Because here, at least through medicine, you have to do your undergraduate degree, and then you go and do yes med school, which is how you get a doctor, <laughs> right? Yeah, but in the in the UK, and I think in other places in Europe, you sort of start university and you learn medicine. Yeah, and then there's a longer period of um, sort of direct ap apprenticeship, like an internship type of situation. Yeah, there can be, yeah. And of course, that is not medieval. Which is mm -hmm. to say, what that is, is we do it, we actually still do it on the original medieval model, but we have integrated the practical into the medieval model of thinking of medicine as a form of higher learning. Which it is, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the parts of Europe that have sort of reverted to just having you learn medicine all the way through, um, those are the parts that basically when they uh, integrated the practical side reverted from thinking of medicine as a higher doctorate type of degree to thinking of it as a more practical degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because of course that was the point, right? Medicine, law, theology. Yeah. That you couldn't get there until you'd done everything else first. Yep. You had to, you had to know it all, which is fair in some ways. Like you should have to know more, right? Um, the sure. doctors, all of the doctors I know obviously went through the U.S. school, not obviously, yeah. but did, but also definitely got a lot out of it. I mean, mm -hmm. we all know doctors who are very happy with their liberal arts education, I would say, or certainly used it a great deal, you know, and like Dr. My friend who is the, I might as well mention it, right? Dr. Kathleen McCummon, who is a pathologist, um, who did like history of science. Yes. You know, I mean, that's a good thing for pathologists to know, right? You sort of. Mm-hmm. Learn the history of the diseases. And it's actually why, I mean, the U.S. has a lot of MD, PhD programs, right? Where you can sort of do these two things at the same time, um, which is a sort of further recognition, I think, of how we agree with the Middle Ages, that you yeah. should have all of this liberal arts learning to go with your science. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing is, of course, scholasticism, there are huge problems with it. <laughs> like, right. no question. It's very rigid. It requires a lot of memory and all sorts of things. and But there are also some really, really great points behind it, which is why we still do it and why Western universities and honestly, really, U.S. universities also particularly um, are very, very highly regarded mm -hmm. because our, our lower aspect of our schools might not be all that necessarily all the time, but if you go through a university, you will receive a level of education that is important, right? And it's why, mm -hmm. you know, voter, um, 
surveys and stuff are divided by education and so on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, yes. Yay. So yes, women should be able to use their doctorate. <laughs> yes. Even if they're not MDs. Yes. Yes. Go ahead and call yourself doctor. Yep. It's cool. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yes. Anyways. Yay. So I think we're going to leave it there. I was going to say, yeah. I, I, sorry. I kept going. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> Oops. It's good. Um, there's a lot to say. There is. But we actually got through everything on the outline, so yes. that never happens, right? Ta-da! Yeah. All right. You know, I had always... I don't know, UW-Madison, um, which is uh, my alma mater. Yes, and mine. Three times over. Go Badgers. Actually, yeah. That's true. Once not, <laughs> It's not especially medieval, but a lot to be said about it as a university. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Yeah. And it does, you know, it's a land grant. I was actually going to sort of talk about, I did leave out a part, actually, that I had on my outline. But, yeah, I mean, there is something, the public education aspect, of course, as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's always been a problem between what's affordable. Everyone sort of needs one, but only people who can afford one get it. Right. You know, and this has been a problem also since the Middle Ages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yes. public schools are trying. <laughs> they do what they can. Yeah. I mean, I have definitely had professors who were kind of like, university education went downhill after the GI Bill was passed in Ugh. 1940. Wow. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, they said that at Madison? Should... That's supposed to be the liberal yes. hippie. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. He was upset with the direction that English liter literary criticism had taken in a world where people <gasps> were not prepared for university by being forced to learn Latin and Greek in high school. I see. Ooh, you don't want to give a call out I to feel... this dude or. No. You don't have to. <laughs> I won't name names. Okay. Um, That's fine. This strikes me as exactly the sort of petty squabble that yes. keeps English departments ticking over. Yep, basically. But... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yay. It's good to have very strong opinions about things that will never affect reality. Right. Like, it keeps that kind of person off the street, I think. Yes, that's totally fair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, so, we hope you enjoyed this, and if you did... You can follow us on Facebook and, you know, just search for um, Ask a Medievalist, or it might actually be facebook.com slash Ask a Medievalist. You could certainly try that. Um, you can visit our website, which is askmedievalist.com. We have pretty extensive notes, occasional corrections. We have a bibliography of uh, works cited, and we have a comment form where we We'll uh, take your questions and eventually work them into an episode. Um, I'm sure when this comes out, you'll be able to gauge based on the date of that editorial how long our uh, turn time is yes. and why you're not necessarily getting a you know, response directly. But we do read all of your comments and we really enjoy them. Yes. Um, and you can always tweet at us at, at AskMedievalist or... Email us at um, ask questions at askmedievalist.com. Yeah, lots of ways to get in touch with us. Feel free to reach out and say hello. And until next time, keep it medieval.
Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 